And we're back for another episode of Startup Hustle, a podcast for entrepreneurs by entrepreneurs. If you want to start, own, or build a business, then you're in the right place. We bring you the real truth about what it's like to take something from concept to launch, from growth, innovation, experience, failing, or winning big, we've got you covered. So let's get down to business with another episode of Startup Hustle, brought to you by Fullscale.io. And we're back for another episode of the Startup Hustle. Today, I'm excited to talk to Ryan Seavey, and his company's name is Mantium. And they do a bunch of cool stuff with artificial intelligence and machine learning and all those things. So we're going to learn all about that today. Um, also excited to have him as part of our series of the top startups in Cincinnati. So big congratulations, Ryan, for being uh, recognized as a top startup in Cincinnati. Um, in our show notes, you can find a link to listen to other episodes and learn more about all the other top startups in Cincinnati. It's one of my favorite things we do is we highlight um, different cities and, and um, cool stuff going on, especially in cities that don't get a lot of attention. So before we get started, I do want to remind everybody that today's episode of Startup Puzzle is powered by Fullscale.io. Hiring software developers is difficult. Fullscale can help you build a software team quickly and affordably. It has the platform to help you manage that team. Visit Fullscale.io to learn more. Ryan, welcome to the show. Ah, awesome. Thanks for having me, Matt. Excited to be here. So as we get started here, um, love to first just learn more about your background. You mentioned before you've um, founded a couple other companies before, and you know it seems like we all have we become serial entrepreneurs. I feel like it's almost a disease that we get and we can't help ourselves. So I'd love, love to learn more about your background and how you got here. Yeah, I think I've always just been an entrepreneur. I grew up in a town called Germantown. If you know where that is, it's maybe. 25 minutes away from Cincinnati on an apple orchard. And when I was really young, I remember I would go out and harvest these different materials to make bird seed. And I sell a better apple orchard stand. And that was, I guess, kind of my first business. Got enough money to build my first computer. Then I started building websites when I was younger. Uh, then I got really interested in cybersecurity. So I did that for a while. It's where I met my two-time co-founder, Jason Montgomery. We were both at American Electric Power, and while we were there, our first company was formed called Nexosis, and that was back in 2014, 2015, and it was because we had all this data power company, and back then, machine learning was being talked about as being really good at finding patterns in data sets, and we had tons of data, uh, but the problem was all the solutions out there at the time were really geared at data scientists and Jason and I are more developers in our background. We thought it was really intimidating, quite frankly, to try and use the technology the way that we wanted. So Nexosis was an auto ML platform geared at software developers. Uh, ultimately that got acquired by data robot in 2018, I think. And then Jason and I and the whole crew at Nexosis went on to work for data robot for about three years. And as we were coming up on our time served, if you will, at Data Robot, Jason and I were really intrigued by what was happening in the large language model space. Uh, that's companies back then. It was really OpenAI was was kind of the main large language model uh, provider. They were getting all the marketing attention, all the news coverage, 
And we thought that was really, really interesting for a variety of reasons. One of them being you didn't need a data set to get started. And this fascination with what LLMs promise really gave rise to why we started Mantium. Well, for those who aren't really familiar with AI and machine learning and, and all that stuff, um, maybe it'd be good to help give them the, the basic one-on-one of how, how that stuff is used and, and common use cases of it. Yeah, so machine learning has lots of different use cases. It can be used to predict the price of a house. Like if you look at Zestimates, that's a good example. If you go on Netflix and they give you recommendations, uh, that's another example of machine learning. But what we're specifically focused on with large language models, you can think of stuff like content generation. So you might give the model a couple sentences, and then based on the sentences that you gave it, it'll write the next sentence. Uh, it can write ad copy, as an example, or marketing material. It can assist with that type of stuff. The other uses are around sentiment analysis. It can do some classification type of task, right? Like, is this sentence happy, sad, neutral? We have a customer that's using us today to look at whether or not marketing material might be interpreted as racist okay. um, by different groups or, or, you know, is this overly leaning towards like a male and you're ignoring a female's perspective on this. So that's a pretty interesting one. Um, but then we also have customers that are using it to look at documents such as invoices, and then they can use the AI to ask questions about those invoices. So for example, you could say, hey, show me all the invoices that were over $10,000. And you're doing this in a very natural language type of way versus creating queries and things of that nature. So that's a high level overview. Um, maybe the other important part to talk about why LLMs are so fascinating is because they're trained on massive data sets. We're talking terabytes of data. And then that gets translated into something called parameters. Uh, not to get too technical, but GPT-3, which is OpenAI, that's a 175 billion parameter model. And there's a debate on whether or not the more parameters you have give better performance. Uh, we'll see what happens with GPT-4. There's some rumors that it's actually the same size, but they figured out how to make it better performance. We'll see. That's right around the corner, or so I've been told um, from the rumor mill. But hopefully that, that helps give a little bit of flavor. Um, when we do train these models, it's on just vast data sets, typically from the internet. So for Mantium, if I'm, if I'm listening today and I'm like, oh, I have some software and we could use some, add some AI to it, from, from a lot of what you just said there, it sounds like there's a very wide array of use cases and, you, and your platform can help with all of those use cases or they're just very specific ones that your guys' company can help with? Yeah, so Mantium is really aimed at how do you get these models into production? So you might start playing around with something like OpenAI's Playground, but then you're going to run into a challenge of, well, I've made something interesting here, but how do I take what I use and put it into my organization or into my business? And that's where Mantium really shines is, uh, let's say that you made a content generation type of, of prompt or AI. Well, you can put that in Mantium, then we actually spin up a whole application behind that where you can come and interact with it. Um, on the enterprise side, most of our customers are doing things with 
invoice processing or document intelligence more broadly. So they might want to run PDFs as an example, like 100-page PDFs, these presentations, and they're trying to extract out maybe four or five key insights. So without us, you're having a staff spend however many hours going through 100 slides versus you could just come to us. You say, hey, here are the four things that I want. As an example, you could say, I want to know what the growth rate is. I want to know what the ARR is. I want to know what they're spending on IT um, and insert whatever else. And then the AI will read those 100 pages and then it will just tell you the answer. So for so I'm a developer myself. I've been a developer for 20 years, right? And so I think one of the biggest challenges with doing this kind of stuff is it's not necessarily having the raw data it's building all the stuff on top of the raw data, right? And so it sounds like to me, if, I, if, if I'm following you um, correctly, it's like one thing to dump a bunch of PDFs, you know, basically in like a database or mm -hmm. a data warehouse. Like I have all this data, but now what do I do with it? And it sounds like that's part of the problem that you're trying to solve is like, okay, well, that's great. You can run this machine learning model, but it's like you need to run it like a million times and then you have like a database that almost sits on top of that, that then when you want to ask questions of it, you have a way to actually ask questions of it right? Instead of yeah, like building it, all that infrastructure yourself. Exactly. Is that, a, is that one way to look at it? So we partner very, very closely with AWS. And maybe to go off this example, AWS has something called Textract. And if you're not familiar with Textract is it basically you give it a PDF and then it will give you the insights out of that PDF. Like here okay. was the invoice total as right. an example. So that sounds great. Much to your point, when you actually look at how do you spin up Textract, it's pretty complicated. Like, right. And then what do you do the with the data that comes out of it? Well, exactly. So it's, it's how do you get the files into it? How do you get the files out of it? What do you do with that? In this case, it's typically a JSON response, right? So that's mm -hmm. big, big challenging questions. Um, with us, we basically abstract all that away. So you get to select, hey, my files are in SharePoint. So we have a SharePoint integration as an example. So then we start looking at just your existing infrastructure, in this case, SharePoint, when you drop in a PDF, we basically make it like magic to you. We consume that PDF, we send it through Textract, and then we return a JSON string. Right. Um, but then that gets translated into either a CSV file. So maybe you don't want it to go anywhere else. You just want a CSV file. Hey, here's all the invoices that it extracted with the total invoice number, the date, et cetera. Now you get this nice CSV file. Or we have other customers that are using more... I think Intuit, think uh, there's a company called SPS, but enterprise resource planning, enterprise resource management type tools, we can send that data directly into those existing platforms. So it's end-to-end. -end. You're actually now using AI. It's not just a model, and people are seeing real value. It's no longer this perceived, okay, well, what do we do? We built this model. How do we implement it? Um, that's really what we're solving with Mantium. Well, and, and it sounds like to me... I would guess your target audience is is a is a company that maybe they don't have a lot of software developers themselves, and you guys make it easy to say you send us all the data and basically we have the platform that does all this stuff. Mm -hmm. But if somebody had a lot of software developers themselves, they could do the same things. It'd be a lot of work, and then they'd have to maintain it. Where you guys provide kind of the the easy button yes. to like, hey, we we have a platform that just does all this. You don't have to build it. Yeah, and I think what's really interesting for us is we have customers on both ends of the spectrum. We have customers that have robust data science teams and robust engineering teams, 
and they're still using us because setting all this up is extremely the infrastructure behind it. Yeah, it's just like, yeah. uh, so we hear from data science teams all the time. Like one of the other big use cases, and this is a little bit more technical, is let's say that you build a model and you're a data scientist. Well, now you need some kind of interface typically to interact with that model. You don't want to sit there on a notebook and that gets a little bit cumbersome and not super awesome in user experience. But going to your software developer team and saying, hey, I need you to build this front end interface for this model. They're going to say, okay, cool. Here's our backlog throw yeah. it in yeah. and maybe in six months we'll get to it. Yep. Uh, but with Mantium, you could take that model. Uh, we just completed the Hugging Face integration. So if you register the model in Hugging Face, it will show up in Mantium. You literally click one button and we create a SPA or a single page application. So you get your front interface for that model that you might've created or fine tuned. And now you're no longer waiting for your development team to figure out where in the backlog they're going to figure out how to make you a front end interface. So we really span that gambit of so i yeah i totally get it right because it's like even if you make all this stuff work it's another thing to then make it work in production and give it the care and feeding and and scalability and all the other crap to keep it running right like it's one thing to make it work it's another thing to like make it work in production and make it work like every day with high availability and all these things right and you guys just provide all the tools it sounds like to just just make this shit work we do another thing that that we found in the market which I'm it's so I've been doing this for a little bit in the AI space and traditionally all AI companies asterisk most AI companies um, want access to the data right like if you look at pretty much name an AI company they want you to use their platform they want you to take your data integrate it with their platform we take a different approach Mantium is, is a control plane but if you have your own infrastructure, you can have your own data plane. So we actually never see your proprietary data, uh, especially if you're an AWS customer. All your data could just live in your AWS account and then Mantium sits above it as that control plane. But your data never leaves your trust boundary. Your data never actually comes into Mantium. We just Interesting. can order that control plane, which is really resonating with the enterprise customers. I can see how that would be really important for people that care about security, right? Like, like you yep. said earlier, example of scanning invoices and all these things. And, you know, well, most big companies are very secure, security sensitive these days. And the, I think it goes even sense. farther than that, though, to, to a more macro strategy of if you believe that every company to be competitive has to figure out how to become an AI company, which I believe is very similar to maybe 10, 20 years ago, where every company was trying to become a software company. Right. Like Amazon's a great example of that. Amazon, sure, they're a retailer, but they were really good at figuring out how to use software to make things more efficient. Now, as we look at, you know, 2022, I think that same trend is going to happen. But instead of becoming software, it's going to be how do we become an AI company? And those that figure that out are going to be the winners. I think that's really how you're going to start seeing disruption in the broader macro sense. And those that don't figure it out are, are, probably going to suffer some pretty bad fate. Well, so I think this is a great topic and it's something I think of every day actually because I'm I'm basically the chief technology officer of a company that's a, a digital marketing agency and so we do a lot with Google AdWords and all this mm-hmm. stuff. And you know our our goal is to help our customers, you know, optimize their spend, get more leads, you know, all that kind of stuff. And it's like, yeah, how do we use AI to optimize this stuff? How do we use AI to optimize their budget and and moving the budget from 
you know, one spin to another spin and all those things. But the, the challenge for somebody like me is trying to figure out like, well, how do I even do that? How do I, I don't know shit about AI or R or um, what, you know, all the other machine learning languages. Like, I don't even know what all of them are. Like, I have no idea. I don't even know where to start. So for somebody like me, who's like, look, I have a business and you're telling me I need to be an AI business. I need to use AI. Where the hell do I start? I don't even know what to do. Yeah. And I think that's been a, a common thing that, that a lot of companies are thinking about as recently as a couple of years ago. But what we have noticed, and I actually love this story, is um, one of our customers, they're a bottling company, so manufacturing type of organization. And their controller was attending a continuing education class just, you know, to be maintainer CPA license. And in this class, they were talking about how AI can help with accounts payable. And she was thinking, wow, you know, we spend six hours a week for people manually reading and reviewing these invoices. And now she's hearing, well, wait, AI can automate this part of my business. AI could potentially save me six hours a week. So then they reach out to us and then we show them how this works and then they become a customer. And I think that's a really, really important story, right? Because that's not a technical person. Right. This is so now that's like data entry. Was that, is that really the primary use case there? Uh, yeah, it's like data entry, right? It's cool. We look at these invoices. Their old process was the people that have to circle and read, like here's the total amount. But now instead, the AI just looks at the document. It takes right. it and then it puts it into their system. And when they're due, what the terms were. Yeah, and, and honestly, one of the important things with them was the human in the loop process. So that's another big feature of ours. Uh, so we can configure it that if the AI comes back with a confidence interval, it's, they can define it. Let's say it's like 96% or below. Well, they then get a notification. They can come into our system and they can look and see, oh, well, this came back below 96% confidence. They can see the bounding box in this example, or maybe the total, the AI says 1,000, maybe it's 1,001. They can just edit it. Yeah. And I think that's like really important for the future. It's It's how do humans work with AI. It's not 100% a replacement. Right. It's how do we work together? Um, on so the for... Google, Go ahead. I was going to say on the Google topic, some of the stuff that they're talking about with large language models and AI um, at some of their developer conferences, it seems like search as we do it today might be fundamentally changed. Like when you go to google.com, I think in the future, how you get results is going to be way different. And they're already starting to make changes to AdWords uh, where it's more media, not just text-based. So I think there's going to be tons of just the rate at which this is going to explode. It's going to be very, very fast. And kind of to your point, is like, well, how do we keep up, right? Like how you do search engine optimization today is probably going to be wildly different in two years because of AI. Well, I... I love machine learning and I love AI, but I think I have the same struggle that everybody else would have. It's like, I also don't know, I don't know where to get started. Like, how would I incorporate it into my software? And you, do you have any tips about that? Like, oh, I, I know I could use machine learning models to help in some way. I'm not really sure how to do that. Mm -hmm. Like, how do I get started? Yeah, I think the first step is just understanding what problem are you trying to solve? Right. Like once you understand the problem that you're trying to solve, whether it's data entry or maybe it's writing better marketing content, whatever it might be, figure that out first. Okay. 
Then once you have a good problem in mind, you know, it could be, hey, I want to help, I want to make better copy or, or better headlines for my advertisements. Well, then you can start looking into, well, what solutions are out there for that, right? Or do and I need to go like, find a data scientist to help me do that and figure that out? The problem statement? I don't think so. I think the problem statement is primarily sure. driven by the business. Yes. And I don't think you need a data scientist yet. I think where we're at today with AI and just how approachable it's becoming for some of these problems like content generation, you should be able to sign up for something like either Mantium or you could go to OpenAI and play with their playground and get started. Like the barrier to entry now is so low and you're not going to break anything. That's the other beautiful mm -hmm. thing. You can just start playing and you're going to start seeing what is capable with AI. Now, the third step would be, okay, so you built something, let's say. Um, that might be good enough for you. You could say, yeah, this is giving me exactly what I want. It's giving me really good headlines. Or you might now say, hey, I want to go talk to a data scientist to make this even better. So data scientists still have a role, but I think it's going to shift to having a prototype being built by the business. The business now going to the data scientist saying, hey, how do I make this better? Sure. Better could be, how do I make it faster? How do I make it more accurate? How do I make it more creative? Whatever and that then, might be. And then ultimately a platform like yours is used to bring it to life and actually operationalize it and make it run. Exactly. Yep. To go from idea to we, we have this model, we know what we need to do, but now we need a platform to actually run this thing on and actually integrate with and actually execute. Yeah, and in, in most cases, it's always, when you think about Mantium, think, how do we get input to the model? So that's what we accomplish. We also have the model up and running in production and then output, mm -hmm. right? So we take care of that whole thing. You actually get an end-to-end application up and running. Um, and sometimes those applications could just be running in the background, right? Mm -hmm. It could be ingest from SharePoint, run it through some kind of OCR tech, enrich it with a large language model, and then send the JSON response to an accounting software solution. Well, and for, for like what we do, it could be like looking at the weather and looking at what your current budgets are for advertising and then making suggestions around like, maybe you don't need to advertise for fixing air conditioners because the temperature is going to be 105 next week anyways, and people are going to be knocking on your door, <laughs> right? Like, yeah. and some of that's common sense stuff, but the thing yeah. is humans still have to manually go make those decisions today, right? But if you can use AI and these algorithms to automate all of that, that's where it becomes really powerful just automating away those kinds of things. Yeah, exactly. And I, and I think even in that case, it's just giving more information sometimes to the human that's making the decision, mm -hmm. right? Like, yes. why do you need to go look all this stuff up? But the AI yes. is going to come back and say, hey, I'm predicting this. And here's why I'm predicting this. You can yeah. be like, oh, cool, I agree with it. Or you can say, wait, I don't agree with it because you're factoring, like you're giving too much weight to this particular yep. variable or whatever the case might be. Well, um, take a break for a second and remind everybody that finding expert software developers doesn't have to be difficult, especially when you visit fullscale.io, where you can build a software team quickly and affordably, use the Fullscale platform to define your technical needs, and then see what available developers, testers, and leaders are ready to join your team. It's sort of like a little bit of machine learning there, matching you up to developers. Uh, visit fullscale.io to learn more. Well, I think we've talked a lot about machine learning and, and what your what your company does, but I'd, I'd love to switch gears now and talk about 
the difference between being in wartime and being in peacetime. And I think it's an interesting topic right now as, you know, we're all trying to figure out, are we going into a recession? They're trying to redefine what the word recession means. Um, and, but we have things like unemployment that are still very low. So it doesn't seem like a lot of people are losing their job. At least they're not yet. You know, and it's interesting as a, as a founder and entrepreneur to kind of figure out, like, are, are we in peacetime or are we in wartime? And, and what is what does that even mean? And lo- love to get your opinion on this. Yeah, I think that when we first, Jason and I made our first company, we were, we were starting, we we're in kind of the infancy of pretty easy money from VCs. And that got a little bit crazy, especially in probably 2000, where it just seemed everybody was getting these crazy valuations. Money was pretty much just available to everybody. And the side effect of that is, well, how do you retain and attract amazing talent? And that I think correlates to you. You almost have to operate as if you're in peacetime and have these more peacetimey programs because that's what employees are going to want to see from their employer. Um, wages got crazy, like a bunch of interesting side effects happened because of how readily available funds were. Sure. And a lot of entrepreneurs are being told, hey, grow at all costs, right? Like you're going to be able to keep raising money. You know, you raise a $50 million series A at like a $500 million pre money valuation and your mindset and everybody's telling you grow, grow, grow. Don't worry. You're going to get a hundred million dollars series yeah. B and, and whatever. Uh, and then suddenly all that stopped, right? Like it really was just like that. And I think people have to shift and understand, whoa, wait a minute. Number one, the public markets are coming back into what I would consider reality with how they, value companies, right? You're not seeing these crazy multiples anymore. And that translates to startups too, right? Because it's like, if you're a VC, you're looking, well, when I IPO, what kind of multiples are realistic? And it's no longer, you know, 50, 60, 70 X. So that's going to impact valuation. Um, and then this well, looks like you of- guys raised, you guys raised quite a bit of money last year, right? We did. Yeah. And I would say you guys kind of raised it right in the frenzy of the market where there was a lot of money running around thanks to the partially thanks to yeah. low interest rates, the federal government's printing money. There's a lot of money running around, which made to, to what you're describing, right? The valuations were really high. And it sounds like you guys raised your seed round. You raised a lot of money, probably at a very high valuation. So you guys were at the right place at the right time to some degree for that, right? Yeah. And in in a lot of ways, we started to predict what was going to happen. And we were pretty early on in deciding, hey, grow at all cost isn't going to be sustainable. So internally, we started looking and saying, hey, we need to keep burn reasonable. We need to keep our runway to be way longer than we want. Slash maybe what traditional wisdom back then was, I think people were saying like, oh, you only need eight months of runway, right? Like you'll be able to raise. Um, Luckily, we didn't like we were starting to scale up. We were starting to get to that burn rate that would require us to raise. And that was going to be kind of that trajectory that I think a lot of startups started off in in 2020. Um, But we kind of put the brakes on that and we said, wait, stuff's slowing down. Let's keep everything in check. And really the strategy now is more of a slow and steady wins the race. Sure. It's the other side effect too, is 
discounting booked revenue, right? So if you're going to have a recession, a lot of customers aren't going to be able to pay, especially startups. And sure. like that becomes way riskier. Yeah. And that's part of our own thinking is, well, okay, when we're signing this customer, like we used to sign up startups all the time, right? It's like, cool, they're going to pay the bills. Everything's great. But now it's more scrutiny on our part a little bit of saying, is this quality revenue, right? Are right. they going to be able to keep sure. paying the bill? Enterprise accounts are more likely to pay no problem. And then you're going to have some that are going to have a lot of issues. Like we went through this with COVID at full scale. So when COVID gets announced, you know, it's, it's March, 2020, I think in April, I mean, we lost about 20% of our revenue in one month, just boom overnight. And I mean, we're flexible for our customers. You know, we we don't have long-term contracts with them so we can scale up and scale down. That's one of the benefits. And so, you know, a lot of them scaled down a little bit, a couple of them, said, hey, we were trying to get this thing going and we just decided we just give up or like whatever. You know, so you get a mixture of all that, right? To, to again, your your point about quality of revenue. And then we had a lot of clients have no problem. They're like, you know what? Yeah. Maybe we don't hire as many. Maybe we let one person go. But you know what? We're in this for the long term and we'll get through it, whatever. Yeah, and, and I think the earlier stage companies are probably, if you adjust course, you're going to be fine. I think where this is really going to hurt is those later stage companies that were raising at crazy valuations and super now high burn rates. Go, like they have to cut cost. They probably have to raise more money and they probably have to raise that money on a down round. Yeah. And that really sucks for all the people that they hired because the strike price of those options is going to be reflective probably on the old valuation. Now they got this new valuation. So now your employees are underwater. Like it's a very, very bad scenario, I think, for a lot of. Yeah late stage companes and you kind well, of you don't know to... you also don't know if the recession is going to help or hurt you right so you know my uh you take covid for example like covid happens and so you know our business loses you know 20 percent overnight and eventually we we you know we've doubled in size since then and, and life yep. is good and but industry by industry and company by company you don't know what's going to happen right and right. you don't know that if you sell trampolines, you're about to be completely out of trampolines for the next two years straight because everybody's at home now and they want a trampoline in their backyard and never in a million years are you going to find a trampoline. They're all sold out, right? So if you manufacture trampolines or a whole bunch of other house household items, right, that nobody would have expected. And the point is like sometimes you just don't know. You don't know how this recession is going to help you or hurt you. Yep. And this happened to my first company in uh, it was a company called Vin Solutions in 2008, 2009 through that downturn. We were selling to car dealerships, which were going bankrupt and GM and Ford and all this going through all these problems. They closed dealerships. You know what? They all needed to save money and we had a way to help them save money. So next thing you know, we were growing like gangbusters, right? And just like you go through all the mortgage foreclosures, you got, if you're the guy that's got to go clean up a house that's been foreclosed, you're really busy, right? So the, the point is when these things happen, there's always people on the, on the positive side and the negative side. And it's, sometimes it's, you don't know which side you're going to land on, right? And so you, you have to take a more conservative approach until you figure out which way the trend is, is going to be with or, or, or against you. Yeah. And, and on that topic, I think when we look at AI, typically the story is we have tremendous ROI savings for these companies. Right. Right. And, and so we predict that a recession is actually a pretty good catalyst for all AI companies. Sure. And Trying to save labor costs. Yeah, exactly. If, if, you know, you go back to what I was saying earlier, if we can save you 60 hours a week, you now have a choice of, well, do we need the four people that were doing this, that were spending 60 hours a week? 
can we basically get rid of one of them? Or in their case, it was, hey, we can have them doing a way more valuable task for those right. 60 hours than, than looking at these invoices and putting them into our accounting software. And I think that story is something that we are seeing time and time again right now from our customers is, wow, this is saving us a bunch of money. And every company is trying to figure out, well, how do we cut cost? Now, there's others. Like, I think I was seeing that uh, the the financial industry, like fintech companies are probably the ones that are most impacted right now based on the fear, which makes sense. I think like the funding for fintech companies is at a, a all-time low. Uh, so that's an example of probably a space that could be a little bit terrifying to be in, but there probably still be winners in that space as well, right? Time will tell. I think... The one of the challenges we're going to have now is is you have people and CEOs that have been growing at a rapid pace over the last couple of years through this, you know, quantitative easing and, and a lot of money in the market, low interest rates that all of a sudden it's going to be like a punch in the face to them all of a sudden if, you know, the recession really kicks in. of yep. And, and it's hard for people who have that momentum and then like, hey, we've been growing, we, we, we're winning, we're doing all these things the right way. And they keep spinning, spinning, spinning to all of a sudden they're like, oh, shit, we just smashed into a brick wall. And like, I don't I don't know what to do. Like, I don't know how to manage the company the right way. Right. Like I'm the guy that's out front leading the charge. And all of a sudden I need to be hiding in a bunker somewhere. And potentially they're different personalities and the person can't even do it. Uh, and like, I they think can't accept defeat. Yeah, I mean, that, that, that kind of goes to, can a CEO transition from peacetime to wartime? Yeah. And, and I know CEOs, I'm friends with them, and I'm not going to name any names, but I've seen they're not transitioning to wartime. They're still spending crazy amounts of money on projects and programs that don't impact the bottom line. Uh, and that's, you know, I think they're betting that this is all just overblown hype. But that's a pretty big bet, right? And and I think from our perspective, the way that we look at this is say, okay, if we're wrong and there is no recession, then whatever, we can ramp up. It's not that big of a deal. But if you flip that and you don't take cost-cutting measures and you don't right. take a hard look, you're you're kind of setting yourself up for failure, right? Like it's easier to conserve cash the sooner you do it. Right. If you have six months of runway today yep. and you make some hard cuts and now you have 12 months of runway first waiting till you get down to a month of runway and then you make the cuts. Well, what? You maybe buy yourself a month. And like, there's some, I think, basic math here that people should really look at. But you've got to make the hard call. You have to transition to being a wartime leader. There's a great book called The Hard Things About Hard Things that has a whole yep. chapter on wartime versus peacetime. Uh, that'd be a great reference for people to check out. But, you know, in my opinion, you, you have to transition to being a wartime CEO. I heard a great um, a great quote or saying the other day, and it actually was related more to trading, like trading stocks or crypto. But I think it relates directly to this. It's like whenever you go to make that trade, you have to consider how much money you could lose, not just how much money you could make. It's, yep. you, have to under, you have to understand how much money are you risking how much could you lose by doing this? And I think that I think that is perfect for for this now, right? You talk about the burn rate and stuff. And it's like, if I don't make these changes now, if we continue to do X, Y, and Z, what risk am I putting us at versus like, I can just totally, I, I can 
eliminate the risk. I don't have to take this risk. I can eliminate the risk if I if I go a different direction. But yeah. the problem is so many people are going to continue the same habits they have. Um, and it can be little things. You'd be like, hey, I don't buy lunch for all our employees anymore. Right? Cut a budget for this. Right? Cut a budget for that. It can be little things at first. And that's what we had to go through during COVID, through the downturn of COVID. Like it was brutal. It was hard, right? Like yeah. you had to make those cuts. And at that time, it was much more severe because like you really don't know what's going to happen with the world and this pandemic. Like literally, is everyone on the planet going to die? Like what is going on, right? Like right. we don't know. Now this recession, like, you know, I don't think it's quite as doom and gloom as that, but um, it, it's the same mentality, right? It's trying to figure out how much risk do we take versus you know, do we eliminate some risk? Well, I think also if you look historically, some of the best companies, some of the most iconic companies were formed during economic downturns. Yeah. And, and I think that says a lot about can you operate in wartime? Like one of the benefits to a recession is the labor market becomes less competitive, mm -hmm. ideally, although employment is currently very, very high. But you oh, yeah. Expect, like, there are companies, especially tech companies, that are constantly laying people off. That is an opportunity. Yes. For every other... Because a year ago, you couldn't company. hire anyone. So if you think about what we did, we did cost-cutting early. And now when companies do their riffs in you know, 400, 500, 800, however many people are laid yeah. off, now most companies post publicly like, hey, here it was impacted. We can go and recruit the best of the best. There you go. You bring them in. Like that's that's like the mindset people need to get into if you're running a company is, well, wait, where's the opportunity with an economic down? Because there are tons of opportunities. It's not all doom and gloom. And I think if you just look at the situation that we're in a little bit differently and think, wait, how can I capitalize on this? You're yeah. going to win. It takes out of a lot of your competition. Like a good example of this, a friend of mine here in Kansas City owns a company that wholesales concert and sports tickets. You can imagine how terrible that industry was during COVID when yeah. there were no events. It wiped out like the vast majority of all their comp comp competition is gone because they 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 couldn't hang through the, the downturn, right? And that same thing happens a lot of in a lot of industries. And even for full scale, like in, in our business, because the way some of our competitors were were handling things or not allowing people to work remote or different stuff, we were able to swoop in, right? Like there's a lot of companies right now that'll hire people remote. So they're recruiting away from all these companies that won't allow remote. It's, you know, being able to take advantage of those times and those opportunities when they do exist. Yeah, that's another great point is we started the company right in the middle of the pandemic. So yeah. we've been remote first since the beginning. Uh, and that's hard. It, you know, I would have much rather preferred to have everybody in office, especially in the early formative days, but now that's such a huge advantage for us is being able to hire anywhere yeah. that we want. And and that just, you know, that's another prime example. You just got to look at the opportunity. and Yeah. It changed. I mean, at full scale, it changed our business model because, you know, we have two stories of a skyscraper now that are empty. So eventually we're like, you know what? We don't need to pay for that anymore if everybody can work remote. You know, mm -hmm. it, it's interesting how these these things change. You know, so for your business, do you see you staying remote long term or do you foresee having some regional little offices and co-working space or like how do you foresee that playing out over time? I think long term, we do want to start opening up regional offices. We do want a place where we can bring the whole company together. 
And there is still a lot of value of having people come into an environment where you're all interacting face to face. It's just hard uh, when you've hired people in every state. It is. So, so, so I think, okay, I think this would be a great business opportunity for somebody like a great, awesome startup would be to create amazing space, kind of like a WeWork, but a little bit different where companies can kind of have the whole floor for a week or two at a time. Mm-hmm. Because what I like to do is fly in my whole company, maybe once a quarter or, or even biannually, but have us kind of there do big kickoffs, do like quarterly planning. Mm-hmm. And then go home. And if you look at that, yeah, the flights and all that, it's actually still cheaper than having a, you know, a dedicated year office. round dedicated office. Okay. So um, we're going to do this and we're going to call them, uh, I don't know what to call it, but we're going to do it as a cruise. How about that? <laughs> we'll do them as a cruise. <laughs> but yeah, I, I think long term, there's something that we, we do want to bring people together. Last year, we brought everybody uh, down to Florida. But it wasn't our space, and that was actually pretty expensive. So, yeah. yeah. Well, as we wrap up the show today, I do want to remind everybody, if you need to hire software engineers, testers, or leaders, FullScale can help. We have 300 people and the platform to help you build and manage a team of experts. When you visit FullScale.io, all you need to do is answer a few questions and let our amazing machine learning match you with the right vetted, highly experienced team of software engineers, QA, and, and other uh, engineering Talent at Full Scale. We specialize in building long-term teams that work only for you. You can learn more at FullScale.io. So as we end the show today, um, what other suggestions or you know, nuggets can you can you share that other entrepreneurs can learn from? Huh, that's a good question. What any uh final final wisdom for for those that and it could just be about machine learning and how we can use machine learning or about entrepreneurship or yeah, I think just just never give up on, on your dreams. And I know a lot of people say that um, tenacity, at least from my experience, is always one out in the long term. Um, even if you look at what Mantium is doing, we're just now being able to realize a mission that I've been on for years and years and years. Uh, it started kind of... I percolating back in the Nexosis days, a lot of the tech just wasn't there for what I really wanted to build. And we're finally at a place where transformers have come online and um, it's just never give up, right? Like eventually stuff will happen if you just keep grinding. At least that's been my experience. All right. Well, thank you so much for having you on the show. So once again, this was Ryan CV and his company Mantium, and he is one of the top startups in Cincinnati. So congratulations uh, for yes, that. And be sure to check out the show notes and can learn more about other top startups in Cincinnati. So Ryan, um, thank you so much for, for being on the show today. And again, I, I should mention that's MantiumAI.com, M-A-N. T-I-U-M-A-I.com. Check out their website. So, Yeah, thanks, Ryan, Thank you so much. It was awesome. Thank you. All right. Thank you. Thanks, everybody. Startup Hustles brought to you by Fullscale.io, helping you build a software team quickly and affordably. Make sure you reach down and hit that subscribe button, then come find us on Instagram. See you next time.
like with the world.